Hey guys, it's me. I'm back and I'm actually here with Miss Scammer herself, Caroline Calloway. Hi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. That was the most low energy intro. I've I've been doing it like a whole press junket of podcasts and I've actually blown away by like how cool common collective that intro was. It was honestly like iconically low energy and I and uh. I and, and hi guys, I loved it. <laughs> Our podcast is fairly low energy. I'm allergic to caffeine, so I have no energy source for myself. So I'm always operating at half dead. <laughs> I'm really glad that I haven't had my caffeine yet because otherwise I think it would have been a crazy combination, <laughs> even crazier than it already is. <laughs> um, so before we begin, I have a quote for you by Teddy okay. Roosevelt. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of the deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. And I think that's fitting because it takes great courage to put yourself in the arena and it takes no courage to criticize people. And I think you've been metaphorically in the public arena for so long and you've always faced so much criticism but you finally put out a work of art and I mean I have to you get your flowers oh thank you yeah I I definitely have every single version of merch is the wrong word but clothing that praying has made with the quote they don't build statues of critics so I totally I totally agree. Did you see that praying clothing line? I feel like you'd love play, praying. I haven't, but that sounds phenomenal. I'll, I'll text it to you afterwards. You'll oh love. Oh my god! Um, so yeah, your book to me personally is high art. It's the type of art that has been missing from the society. I talk about this a lot on my podcast um, because the people in the positions to make that art are too scared and too beaten down by the fast evolving social constructs and terrified of the cancel culture. And, totally. or as I've heard you say, the church organ of the internet. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess it takes, I, have said that. <laughs> I guess it takes a fearless Instagram girl who's already gotten beaten down by public outrage to rise up and tap into what we've been starved of. Um, your book is salacious, it's raw, it's uncomfortable, it's honest, and it's very sexy. And although it didn't feel like you're positioning yourself as some woke feminist icon, which would be really cringe and retarded. This book and has to read about. Um, this book has a non-cringe feminist element to it because the fact that it's about women 
and women's drama and women's friendships and the male characters felt like just these unimportant background players so it's amazing that you managed to write such a sexy book without a specific male counterpart or love interest figure so i have to i mean it hit me exactly where i want it where i just like crave things right now from pop culture Oh my god, thank you so much. I was definitely you know, I was I wrote this before the marketing for Barbie came out, but now that Greta Gerwig has given me this language to express this point, I definitely feel like this book is very Barbie is everything, he's just Ken sort of vibes. Like it's just headless Ken dolls that are like replaceable are like all of the male characters. And then I wanted all the female characters to be Barbie. Oh, well, I didn't think about it like this, but I wanted them to be just, you know, these amazing, complex, deep, attractive women. That's exactly. And I told you, I crave just hot people being messy. That's basically <laughs> what I'm always talking about. Honestly, same. <laughs> Honestly, same. Well said. So uh, my first question is, um, now that you came out um, the other side with some time and distance, in your opinion, is this first product that's entirely yours better than the book you and Natalie would have written together per the proposal, which technically would have been your first real work of art if that happened? Oh my God, that book would have been so bad. Like, yes, not even, not, I don't even need to think about this. Immediately, yes. Scammer is better. I think that, you know, people, people can tell, you know, I don't think that people can always tell when, I don't know how to phrase this actually. I just, there's some sort of meter that like, what I'm trying to, <laughs> this is such a hard concept. I've never expressed this before. You know, okay. I don't think people can always tell when they're being lied to by omission. Like, I think sometimes when you're leaving stuff out, you can sometimes get swept up in the story and maybe you believe it, maybe you don't. But I think that people always, when they hear something that's completely true and they know that someone's sort of like walking along the ocean floor of their like, of the truest they can be about themselves and their motives. I think that just sings to people and it just like rings so true. You can't always tell when someone's lying to you straight up or even lying by omission, but I think people can always tell when someone's being so fucking for real with them. And I, Schoolgirl, that book I would have written with Natalie, that would not have had a, maybe we would have gone away by lying by omission and people would have like at least enjoyed the book, but there would not have been a single moment of me being the realest I could be with them because at the time like I was struggling with suicide and a pill addiction and instead like I sold a book where the worst things that happened to me were like breakups and bad hair days like it just would have been there wouldn't have been a moment of realness in that book and it ultimately would have fucking sucked because of it yeah um from what I've heard um the the proposal you sold for parts on Etsy it would have been a very of the time but overall forgettable book whereas this exactly. one is oh my god yes so well said of the time but ultimately of the time but by no means timeless it would have been forgotten in a couple of years 
Yeah. Um, so maybe everything she's done and that anger she lit in you and the way she plot twisted your own story was actually a blessing in disguise and gave you the ammo to deliver something far better than the original. Yeah, no, I really, I really think the reason that I was able to get this book done was anger. I think anger can be a really destructive emotion, but like anger plus a purpose is incredibly like constructive. And yeah, so I am grateful for that, that anger that she gave me. Once again, I mean, congratulations. Thank you. This, but I've been following your story for quite a bit, and I'm my biggest critique of you um, was always I would always say um, that you're not a scammer, but you have this inability to deliver. And totally, there's a certain. I mean, no matter. Yeah, you made like a brand out of your inability to deliver, but it's hard to respect people who don't have the work ethic and don't give you the product. And the fact that you ultimately arrived at this point where the product is so worth the wait and it just kind of came all together at perfect time. I mean, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, yeah, I really, it's funny, you know, I obviously this book went on pre-sale January 2020. Mm-hmm. And the way the numbers broke down is that between January and March, before the pandemic hit, I sold about 3,000 copies at $25 a copy. And once the pandemic hit and so many people got laid off and I wasn't sure when I'd ever deliver this book, about a thousand people asked for a refund and I gave it to them. And then over the next two years, as the pandemic healed and the problem was just me not knowing what I was going to make Scammer into, since the original plot had been about how 2019 was the worst year ever. And once 2020 happened, I was like, okay, back to the drawing board, got to change the whole book. But, um, yeah, about another, over the next two years, about another 1,000 people asked for a refund. And that left 1,000 orders left. And for those 1,000 orders, I automatically upgraded all of them to the $65 book. And the book itself costs more than $25 to make. Like, and I'm working for free putting all these stickers on. Like, I don't even have the expenses of, like, manual labor, although I'm definitely going to add that to the budget because I need help. But um, yeah, I really want people to feel, especially the fans who like hung in there and like believed in me, even when everyone else didn't, I hope they really feel like I appreciate them that I, I, I hope they're just blown away by the product that they get. Yeah, um, I was one of those people who ordered originally and did not ask for a refund. <laughs> no fucking way. Wait, I'm gonna send you. I'm gonna send you two copies. One just as a gift for because now we're now we're real life friends. And I'm sorry, but you are. Do your listeners know that you're stunningly beautiful? No. And I don't put my face on. Gonna... No, no, no. <laughs> I don't I want do that to deter from the things I have to say. Maybe later, but not. Okay, you might end up cutting this out. So I don't know if anyone's ever gonna hear this. Danny is. Okay, blonde hair, model thin, full lips. Like, just when I, the first thing I asked her when I got on the phone, I was like, are you that model from TikTok? And she was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I literally thought that she was this model on TikTok with really full lips. And she has, like, really cute, like, just, like, 
smile and perfect skin. And she has this like slightly Eastern European accent. I don't know what the accent mm-hmm. is there, but though, so does the model. And some of your listeners, if you leave this in, will know the model I'm talking about and they can leave it in the comments because I don't know her name off the top of my head. <laughs> but um, I literally thought you were this famous fucking model in LA with like a million TikTok followers. That is how hot Danny is. So anyways, oh God, I love you. smart hot girls. So I will be sending you an author's gift copy and you will be getting your original copy. You'll oh, be getting you. two copies. <laughs> I think my listeners think I'm um, fad because I constantly talk about my struggles with keto diet. <laughs> I'm always like fell oh. off into a pile of McDonald's french fries once again. <laughs> okay, you are literally, you are like model fed. That is crazy if your viewers... <laughs> Wait, isn't it crazy to me just as a marketer that you haven't been using your face and your body to sell things? Like, that's like if Emily Ratajkowski was just like, oh, I'm just going to sell a book, but like no photos of me, please. Like, I just, the marketer in me is like, you have assets to monetize here. Like, if we're going to be in the patriarchy, we might as well, like, you know, benefit from the shit if we're going to have to put up with the shitty side of the shit. You know? oh. Anyways, this is mind-blowing that your listeners don't know how hot you are. That's crazy to me. And I hope to God you leave this in because they need to know. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'll, um... Danny face reveal when. <laughs> My next question is, um, there was something about this book that did this really great meta mind trick where you take into an account everything your fans have seen of you, all the haters have perceived of you, and all the things that made the headlines along with Natalie's portrayal of you, and you mesh all the these realities together and some parts you address it from different POVs, like in present time versus writing the book as if you're already dead. You pause and acknowledge certain things as a by the way. So as a huge um, reality TV Uber fan, this felt to me like a reality TV and book form in like the best way possible because you're not only breaking the fourth wall but seamlessly weave in and out of all the walls so I do want to hear a little bit about what was your writing process like thank you so much for noticing that and I'll tell you the God's honest truth about my writing process but I love that you noticed that because I've doing all this press for the book I've found myself really struggling with like finding the language to explain like what I want to be. Like I, the shorthand I always say is like, I want to be a famous memoirist. And I think saying that in like a young girl's body or 31 year old girls, but skincare routine looks amazing. It's the snake oil ladies. But, um, <laughs> but saying that I want to be a famous memoirist in, with like a female voice and a female body, I think that people, People really just, they they stop listening after famous. They think I just want to be like famous for fame's sake and that like I don't want to contribute anything. Whereas like I think if I had a male voice and I was a young up and coming male writer and I was like, I want to be a famous writer, people would be like, yes, of course. Like that's so noble of you. Of course you want as many people possible to read your books because that's, so you have to be famous in order to like, let your writing reach the maximum number of readers. But um, 
the word memoirist is actually incomplete for what I want to be. And the only thing I can just compare it to is back in like 2014, when I was first building a following on Instagram, first with those 40,000 bot followers, and then with like real followers, once I started writing alone without help, the Cambridge captions, um, and people, especially in like sort of the tweedy academia of Cambridge, people really looked down on like what I was doing and why I was doing it. It just like the, the word influencer hadn't entered the English language yet. And this idea, this whole ideological scaffolding of you, you give away content for free while the expenses are really real to you, like groceries and rent. And then you leverage that parasocial relationship to either sell ad space or sell products directly to your audience. Like that, this whole understanding of how it would work in the world and what that position would be didn't exist yet. I was just drawn to it just implicitly and the, or not implicitly, intuitively, but the word memoirist is incomplete for what I want to be. What I want to be is a famous word that doesn't exist yet. It's something sort of like a combination between a writer and a reality star. Mm-hmm. And I love that you've picked up on this, but uh, because honestly, like I struggle to explain it. And he, this is like, and it's like a desire that lives inside of me. And I love that you just read this book once and we're smart enough to put language to something that even I as the author struggle to put into words. But yeah, I want, it's strange to want to write about years of your life that you haven't yet been lived. Like it is like an intersection between obviously the book you put out in the end is the most important thing, but there's also like a theater of self and theater of, in my case of the internet, I would say like the internet is also really important to me and how this intersects. But yeah, thank you for noticing that because I, and I think you expressed it so beautifully. It is a combination between reality TV and writing and that's a great way to put it. And I'm going to literally use that comparison going forward because it's so fucking smart. And then as for my writing process, it was what I like to call full gremlin mode. Have you, do you have any desire to write a book? Do you ever plan on writing anything? You're clearly very smart if you want to write something. Um, yeah, I've, um, thought about it because, um, this isn't about me, so I don't. We won't get into it. But long story short, no, I want to hear. It. I want to hear, it. and I'm sure your listeners do too. Um, my um, stint with Adderall was kind of uh, symmetrically parallels yours within your friendship with Natalie. But my best friend was also really hot, and um, we just did a lot of crazy shit together, like unbelievable shit that I would never, ever, ever go on record talking about. Not a lot of people know. Um, she ended up passing away in 2020. So now I have this kind of... And she was just an extraordinary human being who just lived her life in this extraordinary way and pushed me to do a lot of things I wouldn't ever do. And so I've been kind of lately thinking about all those memories I have and kind of wanting to do something to keep her memory alive, keep her essence alive. So it's funny that you asked that because I've been kind of thinking about things like that a lot. Please, this is your sign from the universe. 
I, Caroline Calloway, I'm begging you to make this book a reality. I, if only so that I myself can read it. <laughs> that sounds like, I'm sorry, this is exactly what I want. Strong female friendships, complex female leads, hot girls being messy, Adderall. Give it to me now, Danny. So, <laughs> like, I want that book. I want that. I want that book yesterday. Okay. So tell me <laughs> your secret done. to your writing process and maybe okay, I'll. Okay. <laughs> so I. What I'm hearing from that is the, you're still in the early stages of imagining the book, which is a crucial stage of the book writing process. And I think people really beat me over the head with the phrase writers write. And I do think that phrase is true and definitely like it is ultimately true. But the guilt that I felt over the years that I wasn't writing actually began to compound and spiral and become like a, a bigger and bigger problem because I just felt so much guilt that I wasn't writing. And so I think the first step for any aspiring writer slash gremlin is that you just need to let go of the guilt of having not written sooner. You need to inhale, think about the guilt, exhale, let that guilt go, and just really give yourself permission to stop feeling like shit. You, you, I'll, in fact, if you can't give yourself permission, I give you permission. I personally give all listeners permission to stop beating themselves up for the years that they didn't write and just thought about writing instead. Those were actually productive years and you were doing a great job, sweetie. Okay. Those were not, that's not wasted time. Now let's get to work. Gremlin mode is where <laughs> in a perfect world, I would have written this book in a, in a Gwyneth Paltrow goop lifestyle. I would have used somehow in addition to starting writing, I would have started all the great daily habits that I've been meaning to pick up for forever. I would have started hot yoga. I would have finally done that thing where you wake up and instead of looking at your phone, you just drink like one steaming glass of like hot lemon water. Like I would have, I would have started stretching more. I would have, um, you know, started drinking green juice in a meaningful, chronic way, in a meaningfully chronic way, instead of just like, oh, shit, I haven't had a vegetable in two weeks. I should probably chug this green juice right now. Like, I would have, writing would have been the beginning of the new me. And that's, I tried thinking that way for years, and it did nothing but let me put off writing. So guess what? You, you, all your personal habits are going to get worse while you're writing. Stop thinking that you're actually going to like overhaul your character and write a book. Like, no, you are who you are. And the person that you are right now is who's going to write the book. So, and in fact, you're going to get like a little bit fatter and a little bit more out of shape. And that's just, that's fine. And that's just, it is how it is. And the strange thing is, with gremlin mode, I actually didn't gain any weight. I just got badly out of shape. Like, I went up the <laughs> stairs the other day, and I was, like, winded. Absolutely fucking winded. But um, I just gave myself permission that every day, as long as I wrote for 10 hours a day oh, and really, like, wrote myself to the bone, I could have whatever food I want. I wouldn't worry about returning texts or emails. I wouldn't worry about exercising. I just put my whole life on ice. And I just, I would wake up around 11, maybe go on TikTok for about anywhere from zero to three hours. And then around two or one, 
I would crack open a can of Celsius, which is like nuclear grade caffeine. So that wouldn't work for you, but you, you would get three of those little wellness shots that I saw you taking before we started recording. You just pound them, just get really caffeinated. And the only thing you're allowed to have for the next five hours is sparkling water and caffeine or whatever your stimulant of choices that isn't legal amphetamines, a.k.a. Adderall. Because on Adderall, I'm sorry, maybe if you have actual ADHD, Adderall can help you, right? But mm -hmm. if you don't have ADHD and you're just taking Adderall recreationally, you're going to be sitting there at the computer screen moving one comma around for the next five hours, okay? So that's, you cannot take Adderall, okay? And then you're going to accidentally realize that you need to, like, organize your Spotify into, like, a bunch of different playlists for every mood. And then, you know what, you blink and it's 3 a.m. and that's the day. So no Adderall, just caffeine and sparkling water or ice-cold water if you don't like sparkling water because you're a little bitch. Um, and then you're going to write for five hours straight until 7 p.m. And this is going to be your best writing of the day. You're, when you're, you're fixing old drafts, you're starting new drafts, you're looking at edits. And then at 7 is when you get to start the easy part of your day, where you pack up your laptop and your charger and you go to a nice restaurant and you buy whatever the fuck you want. Five Aperol spritzes? <laughs> sure. <Hell> yeah. <laughs> for dinner? And just calamari? You got it, queen. As long as you're writing for the next five hours until that restaurant closes at 11, you get whatever you want. And, you know, you're going to hemorrhage money. Like, I was spending, like, it took me five weeks to write Scammer, and I would say I was spending, like, $100 a day, which is, like, you need to save up for gremlin mode or you need to have already put in the work to accumulate an audience beforehand so that you have the financial guarantee that like once you emerge from gremlin mode, there's an audience waiting for your product. Like you need to financially plan for gremlin mode because otherwise it will leave you destitute. But yeah, your your the only restriction is that you cannot get so drunk that you will be hungover. Like you can have as many cocktails as you want, but in, in that case you need to be hydrating. And, um, oh, God, all this talk of sparkling water is making me desperately want a sparkling water. Now, we can have a little ASMR can opening bubbles moment while I get one from the fridge. Oh, but I always have that during my pie. God's truth. That is the honest-to-God truth of how I my writing process and how I got it done. And, you know, I just wish more people would make, would, like, demystify the creative writing process mm -hmm. because I felt like I still feel like writers are scared okay here it comes are you ready Good. ASMR and some cat purring ASMR oh. real real spread of ASMR there for the for the girlies at home but um yeah I just wish that People would stop talking about writing as if it were like this sacred, beautiful thing. Like for me, I had to treat it like a fucking party, you know? Like I had to just like, I had to treat my writing like a bender and that's how I got it done. And I, maybe no one else is like me and I'm a freak, but I think, I, I'm hoping that there are other people like me out there who just are embarrassed to talk about how um, 
chaotic and messy and unhinged their writing writing chapter their writing period was like what their process was really like um there's a lot of people out there like you because most people have these great ideas and they never actually pull trig and deliver them so um i mean i was one of them um that's um when i talked about you and the episode i did on you um after the vanity fair article i was like i relate to you so much on the fact that i felt like such a fraud for a while when i would say oh i want to start a podcast and the difference was between that and you have to actually start you can't keep having yeah. these great ideas so i mean but all the tips that you gave are pretty constructive and um i hope <laughs> i hope everyone out there with an idea takes them on their journey <laughs> um let me yes yes i hope you remember me as you are entering full-on gremlin mode Gremlin My gremlin mode. salutes your your writer gremlin as well. I love that. Um, it has this feel of like a big city, but it's beautiful and it's small enough to make me feel safe. So I don't know. I just love living here. <laughs> Bro, I bet promoters love you. Like mm. I bet like people always hit you up to like come out to like, I don't know, Las Vegas things. Like I bet you are thriving in Las Vegas. I'm a little past the point of always wanting to go out, but my first couple of years here, oh my god. Yes, that was the best time. I Girl, should... put it in the book. I want to read it in the book. If you're ever in Vegas, now you have someone to take you out. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've actually never been to Vegas in my whole life. Are you serious? Oh my god, yeah, you need Vegas to come. Really intimid- Vegas really intimidates me. I feel like and for the same reasons that LA intimidates me, I feel like my best qualities are like my intelligence, my quirkiness, my creativity, my eccentricity. I feel like Vegas is like, we hate all of those things. Like those are not what we value in our women here. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, they value huge tits and. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, and I'm solidly like a 34B. So like, I'm never going to make it there. No, but it's actually, I mean, just for the experience, I mean, you've been to Europe, so I don't know how impressed you would be with Vegas, because it's kind of like the bourgeois of like a, like a classic American person who's never been out of the suburbs, but it's still a lot of fun. Oh, my gosh. Also, look at this guy trying to groom my hair for me. Aww. He thinks it's very unmanageable how long I keep it. He's He's often very concerned with how I'm... But I'm letting my hair get tangled like this. I love <laughs> girls in their cats, and I love I love little lemon boy so much. You know, he has four hundred hats. Oh, I do know. You have buckets of hats. <laughs> I have um, buckets of hats. Yeah, I do. He's a Cat. star. He's very because I've seen him in a lot of your photo shoots, and he just like knows what yeah. to do, which is He's cats usually don't boy. do that. <laughs> If I ever come to Vegas, I'll definitely bring Matisse. Oh my god, yeah. He's fixed, fixed, though. I don't know if your cat's fixed. I wish I hadn't Mm -hmm. gotten him fixed so he could have babies, but... Yeah, same. It broke my heart. for all I know, he might be... He might be kitty gay. For all I know, Matisse is interested in male cats, but (laughs) we'll try to make it work. Let him decide. Um, Okay, are you ready for the next question? 
Okay, so let's switch gears into the Natalie territory. Um, you were wrongfully labeled as a scammer, and that is something Natalie then uh, not only solidified, but also capitalized on, um, knowing damn well you never fit the title. In her work, she says, um, when asked whether or not you're a scammer, she says, when people ask me if Caroline is a scammer, I always say the first mark is herself because the person Caroline seems to hurt the most is herself over and over again. And I literally never only read the parts about you because unfortunately for Natalie, her writing only flourishes when she's talking about you, everything else felt kind of vapid and boring to me. So perhaps it's my mistake that I don't know the answer to this question, but she basically LARPed as someone who is in a lesser financial position than you and effectively used you as her cash cow. And as soon as the cash flow ran dry, she went on to squeeze like every last bit of of it by exploiting you and your story for her own gain like a dirty little backstabber and all the while I totally agree yeah all the while she's a total she turns out to be a total nepo baby who comes from a fairly well-to-do family so from your perspective what is actually up with her grift and her greed and why she's so obsessed with you that she's willing to, metaphorically speaking, walk over your dead body for a piece of gum or for a payday? Yeah, I mean, she's a total Nepo baby. Like, her aunt is the editor-in-chief of O Magazine. And, like, all the places that wrote about Natalie's book, which was really only L and very briefly Harper's Bazaar, They, like, her aunt arranged those. It's just all, whereas, like, all the press I've been doing, like, I arranged for myself. And, like, I'm, those articles also use, like, photos of me and, like, my name in the headline. And, like, I'm definitely not selling any books out here in these streets by, like, using photos of Natalie or writing about Natalie's life or using Natalie's name to sell my books. Like, it's the Caroline Calloway story by Caroline Calloway and I honestly think when you guys were even before the book thing happened when you were living together she lived off of you essentially and you let her keep the 20k that um that I gave her yeah Yeah. so what the hell yeah why was she grifting I know I really feel like Yeah, I know. And what's so fucked up is that, like, I feel like she, uh, yeah, just really threw me under the bus and tried to take credit for my work and also made me seem like just an unbearable, terrible person um, all the while by, like, when in reality, like, I paid her, like, 18K to help me co-write 50% her words and 50% mine, a book proposal that only publishers saw it was very much like a back-end industry document um and she and I think that's a really fair wage I think generous and she kept the money I never asked for it back and instead she used that working experience for which she was like fairly compensated to try to take credit for like my entire 
brand and all my Cambridge captions. In fact, the next book I'm putting out is called The Cambridge Captions, and it's going to be all my Cambridge captions, plus expanded with stories about writing them, because I own the full copyright to those to every single word about my time at Cambridge because I wrote that alone because my Adderall addiction hadn't gone so bad that I needed, I needed, um, help. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's really frustrating, but to be totally honest, I feel like in the past couple of years, she's sold me out or like stepped over my dead body for a piece of gum and or paycheck three times. The first was obviously when she sold her story to the cut. The second time was a few days after her story was published when my dad's body was found. And I feel like she really used consoling me about his death to strike it. I feel like she really used his death. I feel like she literally stepped over his dead body to use my grief to offer her forgiveness and $15,000 if I would just sell my life rights to her, so like the rights to my name and my image um, indefinitely. And then if I did that, she would get a million dollars from Netflix. And luckily I didn't do that. But both of those first two times when she used me, I wasn't that angry. Like I just had other things going on. Like when she sold me out to the cut, in a strange way, I felt, and I don't know if you feel like this, um, about your Adderall years, but I have so much guilt and shame about who I was then that a strange fucked up part of me almost felt like I deserved it. Like in a strange way, I felt like, okay, well, now you've done something even worse than I ever did when I was a shitty friend to you in my early 20s. So like now we're even and now like I I guess I thought she'd leave me alone or like she'd stop, she'd stop. But um, then, you know, two days later, she's back on the case with using my father's death to offer her her friendship if I just give her my life for $15,000. But again, I wasn't angry because I was just so fucking bereaved. Like, my dad had just died. Like, I wasn't even concerned about, like, Natalie. Like, she wasn't... I just didn't have the emotional space to even, like, be upset. But the third time she used me was actually this past year when um, part of the anger that I was talking about that I am grateful for... Um, that she gave me, that anger finally came up for me when a friend who's in the publishing industry in New York leaked Natalie's proposal for her book, which is like, it's the document that you use to like sell a book. And she actually ended up promising a lot more details about me that she ended up not putting in the book. Like in the proposal, she was like, I'm going to write about Caroline's Adderall addiction and I'm going to expand the cut essay. And she had very much, like, used me, regardless of what her book ended up being, which in a strange way is, like, a grift and a scam, because she promised her publishers, like, more info about me and then, like, wrote a different book. Or, like, only put essays about me. They're the, they're the like, longest essays and the most important ones. They start and end the book. But, um, but she also didn't expand the cut essay and didn't deliver on this essay about my addiction. Um, and I was just so pissed. I was just so sick to fucking death of being used by this girl to, like, get a paycheck. Like, if she wants to be a memoir so bad, like, fucking use your own face and your own name to to sell books. Like, let me have my life. Like, 
just leave me alone. And it's just so crazy that like all the stuff that she claims makes me a bad person. I did like eight years ago, high as hell, like at the rock bottom of my addiction. And, like all the things that I would say make her a bad person, she's done within the past three years, like stone cold sober. And it's just, yeah, I, I'm so, I think my anger is a little delayed because, you know, I, I had my father's death to deal with. I had my own addiction to deal with. And those, like, honestly, just healing, I feel like is such a loaded, syrupy, sickly, sweet word. But, like, I really did have, I just, I had to heal from those things. Like, those tragedies really rocked me. And I feel like I'm only just now getting to the place where I'm, like, done feeling emotions about those tragedies that I can, like, finally be pissed. And, yeah, it fucking sucks to be used. And I don't, and I'm, and I'm sick of it. And I just like, I wish, you know, at first I wished that she would leave me alone. Like when she sold the cut story, my first thought was like, I hope after this, like she'll never speak of me again. And then when she tried to use me, not, not, not more than two days later. And then when she tried to use me again, two years later, it was still going like on my name and my life story and my addiction story to, to get her paycheck. I, now I feel very much like, you know what? I hope you are never able to escape the curse of my name. Like, I hope you regret your decision to use people like this for the rest of your life. And I, when I publish the Cambridge captions, I'm also going to put out a book called I Am Carolyn Calloway, which I don't know if you ever read like that essay that I sold during the pandemic to raise money for doctors who needed face masks. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put that book or that essay into like book form and I'm going to release it basically around the same time as the Cambridge captions because I don't, I don't want to do a lot of press for it. And I don't even particularly think the book will sell super well, but I want to just dig Natalie into a hole that she'll never have the PR skills to climb out of. And like, you know, I just, I hope she regrets for the rest of her life the decision to be such a shitty person. In the words of Taylor Swift, touch me and you'll never be alone again. Natalie touched yeah. you and <laughs> yeah. she'll never escape you. Exactly. I love that. Exactly. But, um, yeah, what a creepy bitch. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I enjoyed the fact that you used your words a little bit like weapons um quote unquote her adorable pot belly um i'm obsessed with you for that because i don't believe in taking the high road especially when your weapon of choice is words and you have the ability to weaponize language so masterfully i say take your shot over and over until she's buried and then get on with it <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm literally going to put out another book, just solidify. And for the I Am Carolyn Calloway book, I have more photos from. I don't know if you remember these photos from the um, from the COVID fundraiser essay that I released. But um, I have more photos from that, like you know, that viral photo of us sitting by that mm -hmm. fountain and of that course. like green lush background. I have more photos from that day and that's going on the cover. And I just want her to 
never escape the consequences of that morally bankrupt choice to sell me out. Um, she can't because her writing is surprisingly only really good when she's talking about you. I, it's okay, so yes. creepy. Isn't that a delicious curse? Like, oh, how, like how? I feel like the fact that I mean, it was definitely a great karmic moment when the Washington Post like was like, you know, her prose is stiff and dutiful. Her prose is good enough, and they were like, "And Scammer is quote unquote a masterpiece." Like that definitely felt like a karmic moment. But I also think that there's something very like, it almost feels like a twist in a fairy tale where it's like a writer thinks they're going to make their career by selling someone else out. And the curse is like, and once they sell this person out, they'll be able to like write about themselves and Mm -hmm. have people care. And I think it's a delicious curse that like this thing that she thought would launch her career as actually like a cage that she built for herself and locked herself inside of. Yeah. Um, I was a little bit interested in her book because it's called Adult Drama, which I'm like, oh, okay. But it reminded uh-huh. me the parts that she wrote about herself, it was equivalent of like a BuzzFeed listicle. It was just not there <laughs> for me. <It> didn't hit. <laughs> um Okay, so let's talk about one part of the book that seems to be making its rounds through the critics pearl clutching and condemning um, its provocative nature. I won't go into detail. People can buy and read the book. But there is a revelation of Natalie's rape and the specific reaction you add to it. Um, personally... Well, I'm talking about it. The, what the senior talking about is Natalie... tells me about her sexual assault and at first I'm crying because we're just talking about it in terms and and she's telling me about the injuries that she has and she's my best friend who I love who I thought would never sell me out and I care deeply for her and like there are tears streaming down my face but then she begins describing in like explicit detail her like a play but in slow graphic detail like the whole sexual encounter and her naked body and I feel myself like literally getting wet and being turned on by it and then I do all the right things in the phone call I obviously don't say anything because that would be crazy and I listen to her and I'm a good friend for the next two hours and then later that week I ask my boyfriend at the time I was in this like loving monogamous like two-year-long relationship and I thought maybe that this was like me discovering a violence kink like maybe this is how I figure out I'm like super into BDSM I don't fucking know I was like 21 at the time I was in college I was like very much still learning about myself and I had him reenact what she told me and it wasn't the violence that I was turned on by it was definitely like her naked body it was definitely like women in sex and like I really stand by my decision to include this because number one I don't think that art needs to be moral I think it can be I think art should have human decency like at some in a way that I tried to incorporate that into this scene is that you know I probably would have gone to the grave with that story had Natalie in her essay about me and in her original cut essay she writes explicitly about her sexual assault and in fact she 
she leaves a lot out, like from the original story. There was actually like more that she told me. And the way I tried to preserve human decency in what is like a piece of art that I don't think has any obligation to any morality is that I made the decision to not write about like the other details that she did not make part of the public record. So I tried to keep her story of the assault, even as I'm telling it from my end, even though there was a lot of stuff that she, that was also part of that story, I will never speak of it publicly if she, because she's clearly made the choice that she doesn't want it on the public record. So I withheld that information and just described the sexual assault as she describes it in the cut article. Like she describes her chest being sticky. And um, so I like, in my version, I mentioned that she's topless, you know, like I, I try to really stick to like what her, her description of it. Um, but I also really included it because I feel like, you know, but by not including it, I would be doing a favor for Natalie. Um, because, you know, even though I stick to her descriptions of her sexual assault, I'm sure it's not, like, easy for her. Um, so I could disappoint Natalie or by by including it or by not including it. I just really think that for, like, a lot of millennial women who are bi, like, it's really hard for, like, Gen Z or definitely Gen Alpha that has, like, TikTok Honestly, like, I didn't really start thinking of myself as bi until, like, 2020 during the pandemic, when, honestly, I was just exposed to so much content on TikTok of, like, women my age who, it's so easy to forget that, like, growing up, like, for women in their late 20s, early 30s, the only exposure we had to, like, by hot girls was like Tila Tequila's MTV show. And even that was like so catered to the male gaze and seen as like a spectacle and an oddity. And I always felt like MTV was presenting her like, do we even believe she's interested in women? Like, I just think that, and especially there's this strange dovetailing of like laziness and ambition when it comes to like, millennial bi women who enjoy presenting femme, like, if you're both lazy enough that you don't want to do the internal work and, like, reconceptualize your whole self-perception as, like, okay, I'm bi and I, like, would date a woman and I'm attracted to women, you're too lazy to do that, which I am. I'm definitely lazy in that way. Like, I prefer to just, like, coast on autopilot. But even more than that, Weirdly, I'm also, like, super ambitious. Like, I want the most money possible while doing the least work possible. And I think when you are – and I enjoy presenting femme. Like, I dress the way I want to dress. And, like, if you are conventionally attractive to the male gaze and you're ambitious, it, you are always going to be more likely to put yourself closer to money and power and safety by being in a heterosexual heteronormative relationship like guys can't call you less on the street when you walk down when you walk arm in arm with a man whereas if you're holding hands with a girl like you're subject to more cat calls than you are when you're alone like and on top of that like you know women couldn't even have credit cards until the 1970s in america like and we still today only make 69 cents on every male dollar like 
the earning potential in a woman's lifetime is so, and, and that's even before you take into consideration how less likely they are to be considered for promotions or to ask for raises themselves. Like being with a man will always be more likely to put you closer to money and power and safety. And so since I was just like, conventionally attractive to men it was just so easy to just like and i like men like i like men so like it was just so easy to date men and to just never explore that side of me and so i just felt like by not including it i would sort of be letting my bi millennial readers down um because i just think there are a lot of women out there who because there really wasn't this like like we forget that like up in even in the mid-2000s, like, we were still laughing at jokes in Sex and the City where, like, there's a bi character and, like, we think they just can't decide. Like, bi people just can't choose. And, like, <laughs> that the whole orientation is just, like, a fucking joke. And, like, I just felt like, you know, a lot of women my age that I've talked to, like, my friends who are bi, and I honestly only have two bi female friends who enjoy presenting them and are also millennials because it's a pretty it's a pretty specific demographic that I'm talking about here. But they both found that like found out that they were attracted to women's bodies in ways that ranged from unconventional to totally fucked up. And I would put myself in the totally fucked up category. Like I wish I wish I'd first been exposed to like slow, like audible erotica of like women's bodies in like a different situation. Like I if I could choose, I would choose a hundred out of 100 times to have that situation be different. But it's, it's the truth and what happened. And, you know, after Natalie has just sold me out time and time again, I just felt like at the end of the day, I owe that bitch nothing, but I do owe something to like my, my bi girlies out there, like my, my queer readers, like that's who I actually owe more to in this situation. And I'm going to, I, I'd happily take the flack um, in the media, which weirdly there hasn't been like that much pushback at all. Like I can't think of a single publication that has given me a hard time for it other than Reddit and a little place called Pajiva, like Vogue and Rolling Stone and like the Washington Post and the Stylist and the Daily Telegraph. Like they're all like, this book is great. You know, like I really don't feel like I did get any pushback for that. But I was willing to take that pushback if it, even if it would just make a few readers in a very specific demographic feel less alone and less ashamed of like how they first discovered that they were genuinely sexually attracted to like women's bodies. Yeah. Um, you answered my question. And yeah, you are correct. You do owe it um, to the storytelling and pre uh, presenting a truthful memoir because you are a memoirist. So you did owe that. Um, the pushback that I came across was in a couple of podcasts. There was one that was really Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Celebrity Memoir Book Club didn't like it. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, 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 and Kate Kennedy's podcast. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. She, did you yeah, listen to are... it? She, the podcast? Yeah. You didn't hear no. it? Ugh, she just... Don't listen to it. It's bullshit. But I pers personally, I loved it. That was my favorite part in the whole book because it was so brave and so well-written. It felt very deliberate in the language. You sort of held that tension 
and out of bounds subject matter and gave like a really honest experience most of us women do have complicated relationship to our own sexualities and where men have been out there parading their fucked up uh, proclivities making porn for decades and works of art like currently the idol um women still can't even confirm to be turned on by certain things so yeah I, I heard you say something along the lines of we can morally condemn people, but not art, but people make art. And I thought that was a really, really great sentiment that you expressed towards your own writing. Yeah, and I, I stand by it. Like, I think you can. But, you know, I also don't think that we can. Or I guess I should say I'm undecided about to what extent you can morally condemn someone for, like, an involuntary physical reaction. Like, mm-hmm. getting wet or, like, getting a boner. Like, if you... I don't know. I just... No, I mean, like I said, men have been making porn forever. You're allowed to have a reaction to certain things, and I think yeah. it's great that you talked about it. I didn't even it. know. I, I, did Kate... Kennedy talk about it more beyond just like our discussion about it. Does she like record stuff like by herself about it? Oh my god! In the beginning and the end. Um, What? Yeah, in in the beginning and the end, she basically just said how how awful it was, how it took her out of the book, how much she just disagrees with you for revealing that, even though you made it explicitly clear that you didn't share anything that Natalie didn't already share herself, but she just like harped on it so much, but she's like a dork. She doesn't understand. She's like a sexless teller. Yeah, no, no, no. I totally, <laughs> if anything, like I would have been more offended if Kate Kennedy had like loved the book. I would have been like, Oh no, <laughs> I did something terribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, oh, and by the way, um, my last podcast, that the that I put out, I, we were really drunk, and I I hope and I was actually like praying to God this doesn't come back to haunt me. I said, so what happened to rape? <laughs> Talking about how in the like eight. 90s and early odds there were all these movies where not i'm not talking about like rape rape but a like pretty woman where there's a hooker and like you know like hot or like when you're being um just a woman in distress and you're crying and yelling at your hot boyfriend and you're fighting and then he like grabs you and pushes you against the wall and wants to make out with you just to shut up and like you start like what kind of what happened to that we don't get that and back (laughs) bring that back like i'm so sick of these like the idol like everything's viewed through a lens of trauma nowadays which is kind of an like it's gotten so annoying to me i just want i grew up watching soap press and there was a lot of like sexy rape going on and i was like you know i miss that i miss the salaciousness i miss the horniness i miss the sexiness i i miss hot people being sexy and messy and just Doing all these things. Yes, so your book Preach, really mother. scratched Absolutely. that itch for me, especially that part. Um, okay, so my last question is, um, you have this interesting way of diving headfirst into certain things and 
completely dissociating from other topics. For example, when writing about your own sexual assault, I believe the concluding line you used was, it was fine, it was rape, which I identified with um, that sentiment heavily, <laughs> but this isn't about me, though. Um, and in similar tone, you really don't get very deep um, into your childhood or your mother's cancer or your dad's death. And for some memoir critics, that would be a major fault. Whereas um, then you go on to wax poetically about your obsession with European castles and beautiful settings as a backdrop for your story and wanting to not die with the wrong alumni email and international, quote unquote, international depression, which I love that term. Um, as well as uh, the feminine desire for suicidal ideations. So um, whether or not this was a deliberate artistic choice, I loved it. Um, I gravitate towards the same things you chose to focus on. But uh, my friend and my co-host, um, she thinks it's a way for you to not be sharing a part of yourself and keeping things that are more meaningful private for reasons we can speculate on, but what's your, what's the truth about that? Honestly, it just came down to page count, like in a 158 page book, which originally I was trying to make the book 142 pages because I thought if I aimed for that, it would probably come out around 150. Like I really did want to make this a book you could read in a single day. And more than that, I really wanted, um, I wanted to make this a book that you could read in a single day. Sorry, my cat's making biscuits on me, and it's it's distracting. Um, I wanted to make this a book that you can read in a single day. And I just thought that, like, you know, over 150 pages, and it's like you're actually stressing your reader out. Like, if I gave you a 200-page book and was like, I expect you to read this in one day, I feel like that'd actually be, like, a really unpleasant like consumer experience and I didn't want to do that to my readers. I wanted to give them like a, I really see scammer as like, I do think it's a masterpiece and I agree with the Washington post and the stylist and the, all the rave reviews. And I definitely think at 31, this is the best book that I could have made given the situation and given my age. But I also hope that someday in my 40s or 50s when I'm like at the peak of my writing prowess and I'm making what I always call in my head the Cambridge Trilogy, which will be, and we were like for like ever and like life. And I I hope that like, like I want to expand Scammer. Like I wanted to keep it 150 pages because I didn't want to give everything away so that I could save it for future books. And so in terms of like not writing about like my my mom's cancer specifically that one was just I didn't feel like I had enough to it's still ongoing like it'll come back someday you know and I just it was just such a bummer to write about yeah and something something's just had to be cut to make the book 158 pages and so when it just came time to decide like what I was going to cut in order to like keep this book ideally under 150 pages but like even then I was like you know, I was just trying to make, I was really pressed pages. So I just, I cut her cancer. I cut 
The childhood thing I cut specifically because I want to write a prequel to the Cambridge trilogy that's going to be called Gottschall. And it's going to be all about, it's going to be Gottschall by Caroline Calloway. And it's going to be all about the years when my last name was still Gottschall before I changed it to Caroline Calloway. And then the Cambridge trilogy is going to begin very much like as Scammer does with like senior year at fancy New England boarding school. So that's why I saved the childhood stuff because I'm saving it for a book. The cancer stuff, honestly, I would have loved to include, but, and it wasn't necessarily like I'm saving it, saving it, but like I just, some things just had to be cut to make, to keep it a day book. Like at a certain day, at a certain point to have a day book, you just can't put everything in it. And so I just had to make some, some executive choices about what would, what I'd cut for space. I think that was the right call because for a reader like myself, I don't enjoy heavier topics that are sad. And you made this like salacious, sexy spice bomb that just explodes. And it didn't have that heaviness. And I usually skip the childhood parts unless, but I think, um, yeah, I think it's exciting that you're saving these things because, you know, you gotta make, leave them wanting more and you gotta be a mysterious woman yeah, sometimes. <laughs> well, will okay, you? Your blonde highlights are just amazing. I would come to Vegas just to get like a blonde. It's giving, it's giving straight hair Matilda Jerf. Like I really want these highlights so badly. Oh God, thank you. I haven't done anything in like two weeks. <laughs> I've been little, dirty. These little blonde strands that are like peeking down like surfer girl style. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Um, will you do five rapid fire questions that you can confirm Absolutely. or deny? Let's go. Okay, first one. You got your following by taking out ads in Harry Potter fanfic forums. Yes. Yes. yes? Genius. Love Harry Potter. Well, uh, fanfic, not forums, not like Reddit pages, but by taking out ads on book fandom accounts on Instagram. So, yes. Fucking genius. Um, you got your first book deal by demanding to reschedule a meeting with Tucker Max, which you didn't even really have. No, no. The way I did that was I, I met, I demanded a meeting with his agent, um, because I thought that his agent would be the perfect, I, I thought, to get a book deal, you need an agent. And I thought his agent would be the perfect agent for me because Tucker Max's business plan is like give away story, entertaining stories about yourself for free on the internet, acquire a fan base, and then leverage that fan base to get a traditional publishing book deal. And I thought Tucker Max's literary agent would be perfect for me because he would have already have done that business model with Tucker Max. So he'd like know the ropes and he'd know that he knows the gist and like what we are doing here. So to get a meeting with him, first I called up his office and I asked for a meeting and his secretary was like, no. And then I waited a few months so that she would forget about me. But I remembered her name was Jennifer. So I called her back up and I was just like, hi, Jennifer, I need to move my meeting on the 26th from I can't do 11 a.m. I just can't. It has to be either 3 or 4 p.m. And she's like, I'm sorry, like, what was your name again? I was like, Car Caroline Calloway? I'm sorry, like, I need to catch a flight. I cannot do 11 a.m. And she's like, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm not seeing a meeting for 11 on the 26th. And just, I, poor Jennifer, I've, 
if you're out there listening, Jennifer, I'm sorry about this, but I was just like, that really sounds like a you problem, Jennifer, and not a me problem. Like that's your job, not my job. Um, so will it be three or 4 PM? And she, it was like 4 PM. And that's how I got the meeting. Oh my God. And then when I arrived here, when I, when I arrived there to his offices, obviously no one had any clue who the fuck I was. And Tucker Max's literary agent was like, I'm so sorry. Like, please forgive me. But like, what is this meeting about? And like, when did we schedule this? And I very calmly was like, are you always this unprepared for all of your meetings? Or just mine? <laughs> oh my and God. you find me. I love, oh my God. I fucking love that. Um, <laughs> Uh, Jonah Hill was the catalyst of exposing your quote-unquote scam event. True or false? True. And now he's going through his own cancellation. <laughs> I, karma, karma comes for us all. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ringling Brothers Circus is your arch nemesis. True or false? True. <laughs> true. True. Hard true. They, uh, they went my great-grandfather out of, I would say... Not incredible dynastic wealth, but certainly, like, I, if I ever see, if I ever see one of those ringling descendants, it's on site. Let me just say that. <laughs> oh my god, that's hilarious. Um, and the last but not least, this isn't really a question, but more of a plea to you, to the universe, to the man himself. Is there any way you could circle back and double cross Natalie and still make that deal with Ryan Murphy? Because I love him and I would die because I think your story to be told through his lens the story of female friendship and betrayal and the sexiness. I mean, it's everything that he does. And he loves crafting sexual perversion within beautiful, delicate figures. I think Emma Roberts could play you. How can we make this happen? Well, Emma, Emma and I FaceTimed and she's very interested. And do you know what's actually really funny? Is that, yeah, um, so... Lena, both of my, both me and Natalie's original options have expired because most options are like an industry standard that they last two years. So my option with Lena has expired, but the, she finished the script. And Natalie's option with Ryan Murphy expired, but no scripts were ever written. Like they never even got that far. There was never even like a writer's room. Um, and they are not renewing the option. Um, which is pretty recent news that I've found out recently. They killed, they killed Natalie's option after the Vanity Fair piece came out. Like the showrunner was officially, that had originally been assigned to her is now assigned to a new project and they're no longer even developing it. So I would love to, I would love for Lena to direct her script, but what's complicated is that it looks like Lena might be locked in to direct another project that wouldn't allow her to start shooting this until 2026. And we're currently trying to like work through that scheduling conflict. She would still be my first choice. Scammers is dedicated to her. 
but we also are looking into backup plans. If, and honestly, circling back and picking up Natalie's deal with the life rights that they wanted in the first place is very much an option on the table with, with Emma attached. Oh, I would, I want to live in a world where your story is told through Ryan Murphy's perverted, sick, twisted vision. It's like, it would be great. And you know, I, w- I wish, I wish I could tell you, but there's another girly who's chaotic and beautiful out there who has, who just started a production company. And I actually also had a meeting with her. So whether it's Lena or Netflix, I think Ryan Murphy is actually moving to Disney. So if we did Ryan Murphy, it would be it at Disney, but whether it's that or that, or this new production company with this very famous, beautiful, chaotic girl, I think those are, all three of them would be iconic options. I will be manifesting that for you and for me to enjoy. Thank you. I will also (laughs) be manifesting that for me. Also, Bardo looks so cute. Um, Well, that's pretty much it. Oh, look at her little face, her little (laughs) pink nose. Um, I love it. Oh. I'm gonna end here. Thank you so much for doing this. No, of course. Thank you for having me. I'm thinking ready now.